The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai, episode 279. Welcome to The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai, where we talk about applying high leverage psychology in your business and life. I'm your host, Dr. Yishai Barkadari, licensed psychologist, private practice owner, speaker, executive coach, and consultant. I became a psychologist to learn how to leverage psychology and help others do the same. For over a decade, I've been tracking how psychology gets in the way of smart and results-driven people. For years, I've developed frameworks and tools to help them leverage psychology instead to launch themselves forward. It's my mission to share my hard-earned lessons with you so you can launch yourself forward too. I can't wait to talk high leverage psychology with you so you can learn to take higher leverage action today. We're taking a short break between seasons five and six, but I wanted to share a few of my favorite and best episodes with you while season six is in the works. Today, I'm talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to mindfulness and emotional intelligence. Of course, there are benefits and downsides to mindfulness and emotional intelligence, just like most skills and tools. So today, I'm unpacking how they might hold you back and sharing how I help people leverage the upside and flip the downside to their advantage. Now, without further ado, let's dive into what mindfulness and emotional intelligence got wrong. I'm sitting in my chair, fidgeting slightly. My back feels stiff and my legs restless as though I'm itching to get up, stretch, and move. The presenter cracks a joke about the stress of shopping with her kids in tow, and half of us laugh. Then she makes a pithy comment about not being allowed to feel too stressed at work, and most of us burst out in that nervous, I know what you're feeling all too well kind of reaction. She goes on to talk about the benefits of bringing mindfulness into the classroom, the boardroom, and the bedroom. Now most people are leaning forward a bit. You can hear a pin drop. She walks us through a mindfulness exercise. I can't speak for anyone else, but for me, it's like plunging my face into refreshing water, savoring and experiencing the moment in the way I rarely do as I run around and go about my daily life. I'm suddenly more aware of the sensations in my body as she walks the entire audience through breathing and body scanning exercises. She enumerates many scientific studies and practices like meditation that cultivate mindfulness and tops it off with a takeaway exercise that has become very popularized in recent years, and it's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. I walk out of the talk with a renewed sense of freshness for life and being in my body. And if I'm really being honest, I'm still fidgety throughout the exercises, and I take a few quiet moments to tense and stretch some of my leg and my back muscles. I'm not new to this stuff. I had courses in graduate school and clinical supervisors who taught and shared similar techniques with me. But before going further, I wanted to make sure we define mindfulness. Colloquially, mindfulness basically means being conscious or aware, or the practice of becoming and being conscious or aware. 
When it's talked about as a practice or a technique, it's often used as a way of describing being in the present, being in the moment with calm observation and acceptance, whether that's physical sensations, thoughts, or feelings. As a paradigm for living or managing uncomfortable emotions like stress, anxiety, overwhelm, or anger, mindfulness has many accolades to its name. One of the things mindfulness got right is that we spend a lot of time disconnecting. We disconnect from our present and this moment. We disconnect from our bodies and our breathing. We disconnect from our thoughts and our feelings. I'm no less guilty of that than the next person. In fact, I'm squirming a little in my chair right now, uncomfortable with how long I've been sitting in the same position researching outline and recording this very episode. And it can be helpful to slow down, to notice what we feel. It can be grounding. Mindfulness can also bring up and make us more aware of discomfort, which anyone who's attended or run a mindfulness or meditation event may have encountered. Sometimes the situations, thoughts, feelings, or even memories that we regularly disconnect from can be quite uncomfortable, sometimes downright miserable or tormenting for us to face. But that's not what mindfulness got wrong. Nor is it wrong or unhelpful to observe, notice, understand, and accept. Difficult as it may be, those tough reactions often operate out of our awareness or out of our consciousness. Bringing them into awareness doesn't make them suddenly unhelpful. Those difficult sensations, thoughts, feelings, or memories are often pulling the strings behind the scenes. Mindfulness can open an opportunity to address or respond differently rather than just let it run on autopilot in unhelpful ways. Mindfulness and meditation have deeper roots, roots in Buddhist thought that point and place emotion at the center of disruption and suffering. You can see that in both classical and modern Buddhist thought alike, including quotes from modern practitioners like Muji, who says, Feelings are just visitors. Let them come and go. Or from Gautama Buddha, who said, Those who are truly wise will remain unmoved by feelings of happiness and suffering, fame and disgrace, praise and blame, gain and loss. They will remain calm like the eye of a hurricane. There's a powerful, elegant wisdom to those words. Words that place calmness at the highest virtue, acceptance and letting go as tools to live by. There is also a subtle framing of emotions as being disruptive, difficult, and the source of issues. And yet, removing emotions is not a recipe for happy living. In research with monkeys undertaken as early as the 1930s, when the amygdala, two bean-sized clusters of brain cells behind the eyes and near the temples, that play a critical role in fear reactions, when it was removed from primates, they stopped experiencing fear. In 2010, an in-depth case study was published of a woman, known by the initials SM, 
who was born with a rare and specific kind of lesion in her amygdala. In repeated experiments, the woman both reported and was observed to experience minimal or no fear in a wide array of fear-inducing situations. According to researchers, it also resulted in some risk-oblivious behavior. For example, one night when SM was walking alone in a park, she was attacked by a man with a knife. And the very next day, she walked again through the same park. The researchers reported that she did experience and express a range of other emotions. Of course, the million-dollar question is whether she was living a happier life without the fear. And while they didn't address that question in the study, the researchers were actually very concerned with her response to dangerous situations, so much so that they worked on coaching her to identify danger better and behave more cautiously. Is that mindfulness? Not exactly, because she's not observing or conscious. In fact, it seems she had very little experience of fear and expressed none of it. When calmness is the goal and being unmoved by emotions is the way to achieve it, there may be unintended consequences. It's entirely possible and even probable that remaining calm by holding steady and being unmoved, unswayed, uninfluenced by emotion can have motivational and behavioral consequences. I'm going to come back to this point later, but first let's talk emotional intelligence. And let's begin by defining emotions, feelings, and moods. Emotions are often defined by the physiological or bodily experiences and expressions that make up the broad and complex reactions that people have in situations and events. Emotions are described as immediate and short-lived. In the brain and studies that include brain scans, that's often observed in what's called the limbic system. By contrast, feelings are often viewed as the conscious experience and meaning-making of bodily sensations that emotions trigger, usually following the emotion. So in contrast to emotions, feelings are experienced in the neocortex or the thinking brain. Moods are defined as longer-lasting, more generalized, and can therefore be harder to pinpoint or make sense of. According to Lisa Feldman Barrett, a neuroscientist who has studied the brain and emotions for 25 years and published two books on the collective findings from her work and the entire body of scientific knowledge to date, emotions are actually guesses about the future that are trying to guide and direct behavior. So here's an analogy for you. Imagine you're playing catch with someone. If every time they threw the ball in your direction, you had to use your eyes to see where it is right now, and then after you see where it is, you're going to run over to that spot. And then when you're at that spot, you clap your hands together. Well, you're going to miss that catch every single time. Instead, whenever an object is flying through the air, What your brain does is it constructs an ongoing mental simulation and anticipates where and when that object is going to be going, all while directing your legs and arms to carry you to the right place and clap your hands together at the right time. Okay, so what does catch have to do with emotional intelligence? So emotional intelligence is broadly defined as being able to recognize, manage, and influence your emotions and others' emotions. 
initially coined by researchers Peter Salavoy and John Mayer in 1990, and later on popularized by Dan Goldman in 1996 in his book that he titled Emotional Intelligence. It focuses a lot on being able to identify and anticipate our own and others' emotions. There's also a component of what they call managing our own or influencing others' emotions, which has to do with a set of skills to address various situations that can trigger emotions in ourselves or others. According to the Institute of Health and Human Potential, a cornerstone of emotional intelligence skill is the ability to manage your emotions more skillfully, especially in moments of tension, pressure, or conflict. Did you notice the subtle framing about emotions? I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I'll say it again because it's equally applicable here. There is also a subtle framing of emotions as being disruptive, difficult, and the source of issues. Of course, that's followed by a series of remedies, cultivating awareness of triggers, behaviors, thoughts, and reactions, developing skills to manage emotions better, learning to listen, empathize, and build relationships, developing skills to handle work under pressure, becoming skilled at encouraging and engaging in communication around difficult subjects that leads to joint problem solving rather than finger pointing, blame, and mistrust, all of which can be really helpful. But here's where it all goes awry. It paints emotions as the disruptive kid in the class. It pits emotions against us as if emotions are just there to make life more difficult. It places emphasis outside our emotions as if we need to control, manage, accept, or stand firm when they rage. That's the assumption. On the basis of that assumption, there's a necessity to work around or develop another set of skills, another part of your brain, to suppress or work around this part. In episodes 33 and 36, I talked about the necessity of disruption sometimes and the costs of ignoring it. And I'm going to circle back to those points here. What if it isn't the worst thing in the world to have a part of your brain that recognizes or even generates disruption? What if it's meant to draw attention, slow down, and address something? What if it's actually adaptive? Just like MS, the woman from the case study, whose lack of fear meant a lack of disruption that resulted in missing or dismissing critical information that could have been life-threatening. In fact, there's an entire textbook devoted to exploring the adaptive nature of emotions, and it's called The Function of Emotions. Don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking the development of more mindfulness, awareness, or skill in working with our own and others' emotions. There's nothing wrong with all of that. In fact, mindfulness and emotional intelligence are essential life skills. But they still miss the point in a big way. If Dr. Barrett's research and way of thinking about emotions is right, then our brains are using past experience to predict that we need a push or pull a change or disruption in our current patterns or our behavior? What if there was a way to understand, process, and respond when emotions show up that could harness the predictive tendency of the brain? Just like you anticipate where the ball is going to be and can learn to put yourself in the right place at the right time to make the catch. 
Sticking with the catch analogy, emotional intelligence is saying that your brain's genetic design and natural tendency to attempt to predict mostly gets in the way. So you should develop skills that amount to using all kinds of sensors, gadgets, and algorithms to tell you what to do better and increase your probability to make the catch. Mindfulness, meditation, and Buddhist thought views emotion as pulling us away from calmness, away from feeling centered and grounded. In the catch analogy, it tells you not to care about making the catch, but to accept the ball is simply following its own path and to stay calm and grounded as you follow your own. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of merit to both, as I said earlier. In fact, both approaches include key skills for awareness, groundedness, observation, and being intentional with your reactions and responses. But I think they both miss a key point. Remember when I said before that being unmoved, unswayed, uninfluenced by emotion can have motivational and behavioral consequences? Here's where we talk about the impact when it comes to your team's leadership and business. When we think and treat emotions as negatively disrupting, whether that's being expressed by team members or experienced in leadership. The tendency is to dismiss, ignore, or shut down. So what if you're overwhelmed? You need to get everything done anyway. So what if your teams are overwhelmed? Doesn't change the deadline or the workload right now. I spent most of last week's Thrive Thursday episode, episode 36, talking about the dangers and consequences of missing or dismissing the messages that emotions are conveying. But if emotions are pulling or pushing us or our teams, then there's something that the brains of everybody involved is experiencing and anticipating. Ignoring that is like ignoring the anticipation that our brain uses to play ball. It can lead to spectacularly consequential misses. But when you understand that emotions are not creating disruption at random or for unwarranted reasons, then a new paradigm starts to emerge, one where emotions have purpose, and that if you can tap into that purpose, you can harness it. A paradigm I talk a lot about on this podcast and in writing, and that I'm going to keep talking about. Does that mean that it's perfect? Absolutely not. No system, process, or skill is completely flawless. Sometimes emotions are predicting, pushing, or pulling for reasons that are distinctly not accurately predictive or germane to the issue at hand. The better you understand, the better you can filter out the noise from the music. You can harness the predictive and disruptive power of emotions, both in yourself and your teams. Over the next several episodes, I'm going to be introducing and deep diving into a purposeful paradigm and some practical tools for handling emotions so that you can learn how to do just that. To briefly recap, mindfulness and emotional intelligence both have a lot of powerful applications and are useful tools, but they both have a shared flaw. They treat emotions as disruptive and undesirable. If you understand that emotions are interpolative, that they try to anticipate and help us adapt when we perceive a need, then a new paradigm and another powerful set of tools emerges. And on that note, I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. If you learned something valuable today, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. 
It helps grow the show and gives more smart, high-performing, results-driven people like you the ability to learn and apply high-leverage psychology to your business and life. The Business Couch with Dr. Yishai podcast is produced by Dr. Yishai and PodTech. Music by www.purple-planet.com. Dr. Yishai is a psychologist, but not your psychologist. The conversations and content of this podcast do not contain or create any psychology practice, diagnosis, or therapist-patient relationship with the guest or listener. The information contained in this publication is for general informational purposes only and shall not be relied on or construed as coaching advice or therapy. So do your own research before using anything from this podcast. Thanks again for listening. I hope today's episode fulfilled my mission to help you leverage psychology better in your business and life.